Hey guys, this is Chris Roth here with Bushido Scroll with your weekly knock activism wrap up. Today we're going to be talking about gentrification and Prop 13. We're kind of keeping it light this week because we're going to go kind of heavy on a couple of articles. How's it going, Bushido? Uh, it's going well. We're going to, for the first time in a while, skip uh, cops, y'all. Because uh, there just yeah. isn't that much to talk about in terms. Of, well, I mean, there's a ton to talk about, but there's there's a lot of other stuff to talk about instead. Uh, I just got back from Detroit. I was there with uh, the Climate Justice Alliance and People's Action Network, and it takes roots uh, to talk about what it means to center the front lines in a Green New Deal. And it was interesting because mm-hmm. I picked up a few things that I thought were kind of cool. Um, one, like linguistic change, I'm going to be making in my rhetoric is referring to it as a Green New Deal, not the Green New Deal, uh, because there. There's a lot of different plans out there. And I think, you know, as much as I appreciate Sunrise's proposal, and I obviously do a lot of work with them, uh, at the same time, theirs isn't the only set of ideas pushing for a Green New Deal. Uh, The other one that I really liked was instead of saying false solutions when we talk about things like biomass or nuclear or things that aren't actually clean energy, is calling them poison apples. Um, The thought behind that is like, one, you're not actually saying solution, but also like an apple looks like something that's good for you, right? It looks nutritious. It looks sustaining. It looks like something you want when it turns out that it's not. Um, There was a lot of talk about uh, how to front, uh, how to center frontline in indigenous communities, um, how this Mm -hmm. plays into larger geopolitical stuff. There was um, the first day of the conference uh, Thursday, we were supposed to have the opening done by an indigenous woman um, who's a, a healer and a really powerful figure. She couldn't make it across the bridge from Canada, despite the the treaty agreements that allow her uh, tribe, which is a, a member of the Sioux Nation, or I'm sorry, the Iroquois Nation, to actually cross that bridge whenever they want. Uh, she got stopped by uh, Customs and Border Patrol and had to explain to them, like, no, I don't have a passport and no, I don't effing need one. Um, but it's a lot of this kind of recentering and rethinking about what it means to end the extractive economy and actually build a regenerative yeah. economy, and especially how we try and construct a Green New Deal that doesn't have market-based solutions. And I I run into this a lot in my organizing where there's a lot of big groups out there that are pushing carbon pricing, that are pushing cap and trade. And I've never really liked those ideas because all that means when you're talking about offsets or you're talking about pricing carbon is that you're still making that pollution. It's still happening somewhere. That oil's getting pulled out of the ground. The uranium's getting pulled out of the ground somewhere. Someone, some community is still suffering, uh, but we're just causing people to pay more. And it becomes regressive because we know with like greenwashing, the people of means, people that are wealthier can afford to pay for things like Priuses, that can pay, can afford to pay for things like solar panels on their roof to get away from that carbon mm-hmm. pricing uh, penalty. And it becomes regressive on communities that maybe rely on their cars to get around because they're out in rural America, or maybe you're like a landscaper in Los Angeles and you're driving from like Granada Hills to Santa Monica and you can't tow a riding lawnmower behind a Prius. Um, And a lot of questions about like how we start really transforming the economy to be more locally centered and moving away from these neoliberal market solutions. So we can really start like undoing the root of climate change, which is capitalism. Uh, This all also kind of pulled together in a very interesting way because Detroit is going to be hosting the next round of Democratic presidential debates uh, on the 30th Mm -hmm. and the 31st. Uh, And so Sunrise is going to be out there doing uh, some trainings and like some panels and getting people together to talk about what it means to build a Green New Deal and why 
we need a climate debate, as well as uh, doing a direct action with a lot of their local partners. And this was one where like Sunrise's original plan was we're going to bring like 10,000 people and we're going to mob up on Detroit. And then the people in Detroit were like, let's slow that down. And how about you come talk to us about what we're actually going to do? And so it turned into a smaller but more focused action, one that's got more local buy-in. Yeah. Uh, if you're interested in getting involved uh, and hosting a debate watch party, if you're not in Detroit, uh, you can always check out sunrisemovement.org slash climate hyphen debate and sign up to host a watch party or they should have in the next couple of days a map up of watch parties going across the nation. I know that I'm going to be hosting uh, one of them on the 31st along with uh, Next Gen AZ and there's a couple others going out going on uh, out here in Phoenix. I know there's always going to be a bunch of them happening in LA. I know Sunrise for the last time uh, hosted like five of them and you attended them um, and they're really, yeah, really good times that I think the, the 30th debate is going to be more interesting with Warren and Bernie on the stage. Uh, I don't care too much about the Biden debate, but it is going to be interesting to kind of watch the two different debates and compare them and see how things uh, change. Uh, you know, obviously Mike uh, Gravel did not make it onto the stage, but for some reason, Marion Williamson and Andrew Yang are still going to be on the stage, um, as well as like Beto and uh, Mayor Pete and a bunch of other folks who just need to like drop out. John Delaney and John Hinkenlooper, I'm looking at you. You just need to go away and stop being stupid. Uh, but anyways, it was it, all in all, it was a really good trip. Um, it was also cool because where we were at was a place called the Cass Corridor Commons, which is right underneath a community law firm called Sugar Law, uh, which gave us Rashida Talib, um, which I thought was really cool. Like it was a real community convergence spot. Uh, I was supposed to see her speak on Friday night, but she couldn't make her flight from Pittsburgh to Detroit because of a freak hailstorm. Because you know it's July, and apparently hailstorms happen in July in the middle of massive heat waves. So that was pretty fun, and I thought it was like a nice little bow on the entire weekend um, to just be like, oh yeah, climate change fucks up everything. <laughs> Yep. More severe weather patterns all over the place, making life much more difficult to predict, having freak hailstorms that come through and destroy crops, having flooding that comes through and prevents the farmers from being able to seed the land until far later in the season, which means that there's less time for things to grow, having fires sweep through massive swaths of California every single year. Not like it wasn't already doing that, but now it's getting worse. We're living in very normal times, aren't we, Bushido? Uh, you know, as, as, uh, Camus said, absurdity is the first rule and we're just going to lean right into that existentially. (laughs) But speaking of absurdity being the first rule, uh, so there was (laughs) an incredible study that was done by the, uh, Philadelphia branch of the, uh, federal reserve, uh, as well as someone else. It's, it's slipping on me now, but they were basically trying to say like, Hey, gentrification isn't actually bad. And, uh, this, as you can predict, pissed off a lot of people who work in the housing and gentrification sphere um, and a lot of kind of neoliberal journalists like, what do you mean this isn't a study that, that makes a lot of sense? Or what do you mean this doesn't yeah. match with lived experience? But let's go ahead and like yeah. eviscerate this thing for fun. This is, yeah. So, oh man. Okay. So we're not really quite doing a reading series here because this is more just us getting angry rather than laughing at people for pretty absurd opinions, Uh, but we're pretty close. Um, We're going to be quoting extensively from this July 16th City Lab piece that was written by Kristen Capps, who is, he's he's a staff writer at City Lab and used to be like a senior writer at Architect. Um, Yeah, so the situation going on here, uh, oh, and the study that he cites uh, frequently, which is, quote, 
The effects of gentrification on the well-being and opportunity of original residents, adults, and children, which was written by Quentin Brumette, or Brume, I'm not sure, and David Reed, and published in July 2019. Quote, this is coming from uh, Kristen Capps. Quote, often it goes without saying that the drawbacks of neighborhood change, above all the displacement of existing lower income residents, but also increases in rent and upticks in cultural conflicts, generally outweigh any benefits. Uh, Bushido, what are you thinking on that one? Uh, it, it, this is one that like kind of boggled my mind because at, at some point you have to accept or either reject like this author did the idea that lived experience is expertise. <laughs> and in a lot of these neighborhoods, what you're seeing, you see this, especially in like Boyle Heights and like East LA where a lot more money comes in, like the restaurants get a lot nicer, but that money isn't coming back into the community. They're not hiring people who live in Boyle Heights. The owners themselves mm -hmm. aren't from Boyle Heights. Uh, the people who mm -hmm. are uh, like patronizing these restaurants aren't really folks that have lived in Boyle Heights for a very long time. It, it really, you see this idea that uh, a, a rising tide floats all boats. Of course, we know that like when those boats are getting floated, some boats are floating a lot higher than others and some are just getting pushed right out of the bay. Absolutely. It's the whole thing is just pretty patently absurd here. But uh, Caps continues and says, quote, and the harms of gentrification, while hard to fully gauge, may not be so severe for original residents, especially for those who stay. But even though even for those who choose to leave end quote, I mean, I found that particularly like, what the hell are you talking about? Uh, but yeah, go. Yeah, no, I was going to say this one, this one, <laughs> like this quote especially stuck out to me because they said, you know, a lot of those res like a lot of the folks who are longtime residents in these neighborhoods leave. Like a lot of these yes. folks aren't sticking around. It's only about 30% of the original residents when gentrification starts end up sticking around. And for the people who do end up staying, they don't provide a lot of good evidence that their life gets better. They just say, oh, it doesn't get a heck of a lot worse, even though yeah. costs are going up. Every standard of living that they're having to grapple with goes up. And then eventually they are leaving. Like when you look at the long term trends here and the article talks about this later, most of those residents end up moving anyways under because of, of external pressures. And when they do leave, they're not moving into like better neighborhoods. Often they're moving into neighborhoods that are the same as they were before their original neighborhood got gentrified or sometimes even into worse neighborhoods. Um, and often they're not able to do it for more cheaply. Like when they move, they're not moving to a place that costs them less. They're just moving to a place that's less convenient to, to where they, they like go to school and where they work. And that's costing them the same amount of money, uh, often with like lesser amenities and less access to the stuff that they want. We also know a lot of folks stay in neighborhoods uh, because they end up unhoused in those neighborhoods. Uh, you know, people like Joseph Reyes, they live in neighborhoods for decades and then get displaced yeah. onto the street and then end up sort of becoming the, the economic refuse of the neighborhood as it gentrifies around them. And you've yeah. got to wonder, like, who was the Fed looking at? Because they weren't looking at residents who became unhoused. They were only looking at residents who could afford to maintain their housing. Well, so this is this is where we're, we're going to get into this in a second here, because um, they frankly, weren't looking at most of Los Angeles, but we'll get into that. Nope. So what the uh, the paper that Caps is citing in here is one that purports, quote, 
to be the first comprehensive longitudinal study of the long-term effects of gentrification on original residents, end quote. So let's look at how this, what the, what the map shows. So Bushido, go ahead and then like scroll down to the bottom of this. Uh, yeah, I got it pulled our, up. Our script here. Yeah. Nice. Um, so if, first of all, I don't know why they decided not to orient the axis of what Los Angeles is along the north-south lines. I, I had to like tweak it by a good 30 degrees or 20 degrees in order to make it so that everything lined up and I could actually compare the tracts that they're talking about to an actual map of the city of Los Angeles. So that was annoying. But uh, you, you're noticing some, some fun stuff there in terms of the frequency of tracts that are being labeled as those that have been gentrified? Yeah, and those, those that apparently <laughs> did not gentrify which from what I'm looking at, like has a very weird sort of like, at least they get like sort of the Venice and Mar Vista, like did gentrify. What interests me is along the like 405 corridor, my neighborhood in Palms and West LA is conspicuously absent. Uh, even though they they got you, they got part of Palms. They got part of Palms, but not all of it. And like, I can tell you that that's not enough of Palms being gentrified. Also downtown seems suspiciously not gentrified. Uh, no, it, downtown did too. That was one of the. That was like basically the only thing. This map is really annoying because. Oh, you know what? I'm looking. Landmarks. I'm looking too far. I'm looking too far west to yeah. see downtown. Now I'm so seeing downtown. That the 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 bits that are uh, the the right half of that dark part that's got the angle to it. Um, that's downtown. So. It's fun. Um, but yeah, so I've got some fantastic news for everybody who's uh, living in, 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 in um, uh, let me get back to the script. Ba, ba, ba. So I've got some fantastic news for everyone who's living in Highland Park that sees things changing around them because according to this study, only one little tiny sliver of your neighborhood was actually gentrified. The only tract that this study says experienced gentrification is the tract south of Figueroa and York, right along the 110 freeway and crossing over uh, the Arroyo Seco. And uh, it's, it's a preposterous <laughs> an absolutely preposterous delineation that says, yeah, no, none of the rest of Highland Park actually got gentrified. It literally is saying that they just did not experience gentrification. And I, I mean, for a neighborhood that was literally the home of the let's do a five or 10 part series on NPR about gentrification and we're going to record it in a studio in Highland Park and they're going to experience some stuff that says that people are writing like don't come into our neighborhood gentrifiers on their windows of the NPR recording studio. Like I, I fundamentally don't understand what this study is talking about when their baseline determination of whether or not a neighborhood has even been gentrified yep. is completely, at least in LA and like it, it, it just completely disregards the lived experience of all of these people who we know personally and who have had this genuine lived experience and know what the hell they're talking about. Uh, so yeah, the, most of Highland Park, according to them, is either ungentrifiable, uh, which is an interesting thing to determine, uh, or did not expense, experience gentrification during the course of what time period they studied. So in fact, according to this study, only 54 of our 666 gentrifiable tracts were actually gentrified. That puts us at number 36 on their list. Hold on. Uh, that's that's also really funny that we have 666 gentrifiable <laughs> tracts. That's, I was wondering so, if that's some that interesting <laughs> numerology going on there. 
Yeah, so it's also worth noting that like Lincoln Heights, uh, which is a neighborhood just north of downtown, uh, north of Chinatown, actually, and it's an extremely uh, industrial neighborhood. It's it's right if you know where that like the Home Depot is. That's right at the intersection of the one ten and the five. Like that's like the northern end of the Lincoln Heights area uh, for the tract that they're specifying as as having been gentrified, which is definitely the case because it's it's a you know formerly and in, mostly industrial area that's now got some up and coming live work lofts and whatnot going well, but in. But there's also I think is, it's I think it's interesting that they're restricting this really to residential because and we. Yeah. We at Ground Game caught like oh, a yeah. really weird message from, uh, I don't think it was Defend Boyle Heights, but it was some other group out there uh, when we we're going to have our fundraiser out at a, a space in that area of town. And they were like, Defend that's Chinatown. A- Wait, what? <laughs> I think it was Defend Chinatown. Yeah, well, it was, I, it was someone I'd never heard of before. But anyways, they, they accused something of- that we didn't remember. Yeah, well, they they uh, they accused us of participating in gentrification because we had been given uh, free space at a a uh, a business out there. Um, and it, when I went to scout the location, kind of check it out, it was clear that there is some gentrification happening in that area. But also, a lot of the businesses around there had been there for like a really long time and were mainly, uh, you know, uh, truck businesses, uh, towing businesses, uh, very like mid and light industrial businesses. But it kind of looked to me like gentrification was getting ready to set in there. Like, and I know there are some like co-working spaces and other stuff out there. Um, but it's, it's, um, it's strange to see that trend playing out where people in the neighborhood are already identifying gentrification happening, but that's not meeting the economists, you know, definition of what gentrification is. And I think that's a big problem with this entire piece is as economists, they want a very set and (laughs) clean and static definition of what gentrification is. And that's really not how it works in the real world. Absolutely. So like one of the big glaring highlights as we're working our way, like from the northeast portion of the city, uh, we're going to work our way toward the west. Um, Chinatown did not qualify as an area that's being gentrified. And honestly, like I would pay some very good money to sit down and watch the authors of the study trying to explain to the folks over at CCED, the the Chinatown Community for Equitable Development, that in fact their neighborhood is not actually gentrifying. Uh, Even more fun, let's see them explain it to the folks over in the entirety of Boyle Heights that there isn't any gentrification going on in their neighborhood either. Like literally all of the tracts that make up Boyle Heights are all labeled as did not experience gentrification. I mean, that alone just completely disqualifies what the hell these people are talking about when they're saying, oh yeah, we can make all these generalizations and we can discuss what is going on with gentrification because we clearly have no fucking clue what we're talking about when you show up and you say, nope, Boyle Heights, no gentrification. Nothing. Well, it's like with the they, with the Hillside Villa tenants, uh, they yeah. won a ten year extension on their contract for affordable housing. So, like, big ups on that one. Like, that's a huge win for Law Two and a huge win for Chinatown and for those tenants. But that's also gentrification that's happening that they're missing because we know in the Hillside Villa like building, the the landlord has been moving in market rate tenants for the last mm-hmm. ten or fifteen years. As you know, affordable housing tenants move out, he's just upping the. Or the bosses are just upping the rent as high as they can and moving people into like a building that's in really crappy condition. There's clearly like more money and cultural changes flooding in there, but not being captured by this study. 
Yeah. And I mean, the, the number of businesses that have been displaced in Chinatown and the number of new market rate almost entirely or actually uh, often case 100 percent market rate developments that are going into Chinatown and are these completely like dissonant um, structures that do not have any any real tie into the community. There's there's nothing that says this is Chinatown about most of the new housing that's going into Chinatown. Uh, and it's they're they're pushing folks out. And like the fact that the this study would say that Chinatown is not experiencing gentrification is absolute just complete horseshit. Uh, so they they basically are saying that the only areas in like the downtown adjacent space is like Central City North, which is the tract uh, where the arts district is, which, you know, undeniably that is absolutely experiencing gentrification. Nobody doubts that. Uh, and then the rest of downtown LA, which also definitely is experiencing gentrification. Um, but then like what happens is like one of the really big glaring omissions to me is that as soon as you start going south of the 10 and you go into like the university park area uh, and exposition park and all of those areas down around USC, nope, no gentrification down there. What, what do you mean gentrification in the vicinity around the University of Southern California where incredible numbers of people have been displaced from their homes over the last 20 years alone, where, like, which I have, like, I, I have been living in Los Angeles for the last 16 years. I started living in Los Angeles in the University Park area as one of the people who was coming in doing the gentrifying because I was a student and I was, you know, living there because that's what student housing in that neighborhood has been doing forever. Yeah, I was going to, I was going to say the same thing. Like when I moved in there, like I lived in a really crappy house for like most of my oh, time yeah. at USC, we were paying more than most of our neighbors were paying in rent exactly. for like a really substandard house. But that was also, you know, a constant tension in the neighborhood where uh, yep. a majority Guatemalan and Salvadoran uh, families were constantly feeling squeezed by the fact that there were students who had virtually unlimited resources to move in. Uh, what we weren't seeing was, the the facelifts on that neighborhood you know and now yeah. we're seeing that the expo That's park tenants happened. the new like yeah. condos that are going up we're seeing all of that <laughs> happening and you you kind of like do a double take when they're like usc not being gentrified and then you see six effing cranes towering above the expo line building hundreds oh, yeah. of market rate units and i don't know if no. that's not gentrification i don't know what you call that it's kind of fun because when you look at this map, like they actually label the tract that is the University Park campus for USC as ungentrifiable, which I mean, eh, it's kind of fair. Like it's hard to gentrify the university itself, but like every tract that's around it. Oh, 100% they are going through gentrification. There, there's yeah, like, anyone who says otherwise just does not know what they're talking about. How can you look at the university village and what happened there and not <laughs> call that gentrification? Where is my Ranch 99 market? Where is my shady Armenian cigarette sales? It wasn't, it wasn't Ranch Gone. 99. It was, um, oh, what was the name It was for a bit, market? and then it switched to uh, maybe it? Ranch 32 or something. <laughs> Um, but it was it was a couple of different ones. something else when I was there. Yeah, it was, no, it was but it was bad. it was it was yeah, so it, bad. it was like to see it what University Village was and what it's become. Uh, yeah, that's it's it's total gentrification there. Maybe Absolutely. they're they're claiming 100%. it's not because like that land is owned by the university. And so like it's not trading I mean, up. I mean, I don't know what they're uh, using there, but like 
just eyes on the ground, this doesn't make a lot of sense to no, me. No, none of this is adding up. So, uh, oh yeah, by the way, also Koreatown and everything else that's west of the 110 does also has, there's no gentrification there either, except for a couple of small tracks right next to Hancock Park. Uh, Tell I, that to I all mean, the businesses in Westlake that have gotten displaced. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, this study is just, I mean, I am floored by where... Where in the city of Los Angeles they ha- are making these determinations of, yep, nope, this track didn't experience gentrification. Oh, nope, this one did. I mean, when they say it experienced gentrification, yeah, it probably did. But the number of areas that they're saying did not experience gentrification, it's just patently absurd. So the places that they're saying like did only really seem to be those that are, uh, you know, Los Feliz, uh, Silver Lake, Echo Park, and a couple of regions in Hollywood, again, right next to Hancock Park, because uh, yeah, Hancock Park. Um, there's also like a weird smattering of gentrification up in the valley that we didn't, I didn't really dig into as I was trying to match neighborhoods to tracts. Um, and then there's also some out on the west side, uh, Sawtell in particular, which has definitely been seeing a massive, uh, quote unquote, urban renaissance in the last few years with yep. tons of new development going in there. Um, like we said earlier, a chunk of palms, but not all of it. And then bizarrely, like this area just north of Cadillac Boulevard between Robertson and Thurman, like that's one of the only tracts in that area that is apparently experiencing gentrification. Well, it, like this, this map is just wild. Well, and what's even crazier about that, like, Palms bit and the fact that it's not capturing, like, the the start of Westwood um, when you hit, like, Pico there uh, heading towards UCLA is, like, Google's getting ready to move 3,500 employees into the old West Side Pavilion. Like, yep. I know the apartment, the, the <laughs> RSO apartment. That's not gentrification. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, like, the, the RSO apartment that I moved out of was costing me $1,700 a month. A friend of mine moved in Oof. about a half mile away uh, into a same size unit as what I was living in. It's also RSO for him, but his base rent, 2400 a month. Like, Damn. maybe we're not seeing gentrification in the, like, definition that these researchers are using, but that's significantly, you know, cutting down on the number of people who can afford those apartments. Oh, yeah. And, like, yeah, I guess sure. a lot of it is, like, they're not knocking down buildings or flipping buildings and making them nicer and charging, like, outrageous rents, but, like, <laughs> when you're looking at base rent in a neighborhood, just in the span of a few years, jumping from, like, 12, 13, maybe 1400 a month to, like, well over two grand a month for uh, a one-bedroom. Yeah. I mean, that's, I don't know what you call that if it's not gentrification or, you know, I, I would more maybe say techification because like every person I know that lives in that yeah. neighborhood now works for some yeah. sort of dot-com company and they all generally do know how to code. Yeah. So I think the way that Caps is describing it, like at the beginning of the article, and we're, we're going to link uh, this article as well as a second uh, one that we're going to get to later, or actually no, we're, it's not an article, it's a mailer, so we're not going to link it. Um, we'll link this article in, in the description for the podcast because it's very, it's bizarre to read through and I highly recommend it to everybody if you want to take a few minutes to go through. It's, you, you're going to get mad. Um, one of the interesting things that Caps seems to think is a, like in the opening paragraph is alluding to as a necessary function in uh, gentrification seems to be like the popping up of wine bars. Uh, So, you know, it feels like it's the coffee shops, 
uh, like the espresso brewing coffee shops, the art galleries, the wine bars, and the yoga studios. Those, if you don't have those, you must not be experiencing gentrification, even <laughs> though you're going to be having like massive displacement in rents. And we're going to talk about the vacancy uh, control stuff here in a minute, but it's just this whole thing just. I, I don't understand how this study is saying, yeah, this is, we are the definitive experts on talking about uh, displacement and gentrification and the, the societal harms associated with that when they can't seem to even be able to pick out which neighborhoods uh, in Los Angeles are actually experiencing gentrification. Like it, it's absurd. Yeah. Well, let's, let's go ahead and talk about the harms that people aren't experiencing in their non gentrifying neighborhoods. Yeah, so Caps is saying that, quote, the research shows that, quote, for all types of individuals, movers from gentrifying neighborhoods do not experience worse changes in observable outcomes than movers from non-gentrifying neighborhoods, end quote. Uh, the paper that Caps is citing continues saying, quote, that is, they are not more likely to end up in higher poverty neighborhood, or in a higher poverty neighborhood, rather, uh, to become unemployed or to commute farther than individuals moving from non-gentrifying neighborhoods, end quote. I mean, any validity that this argument may hold in cities outside of Los Angeles is just completely lost here. In virtually all circumstances where folks are experiencing the displacement effects of gentrification in Los Angeles, they are being displaced from affordable rent stabilized units because that's like 70 percent, 75 percent of the of the actual uh, rentable units in the city, and they're being pushed into open housing stock. Even if that open housing stock is an RSL unit, just like you mentioned with your example in Palms, the, the, they've all been moved to what is now effectively market rate. And so that if, even if those, those units are rent stabilized, they're not going to be as affordable as they were for the last person who lived there because we do not have vacancy control because Costa Hawkins made it illegal to have vacancy control. So it's virtually impossible to take this paper seriously when it comes to applying any of these lessons that they're talking about to what's going on here in Los Angeles because like the rental rules and how everything works in the, the housing market in Los Angeles and in California as a whole really just it's just a completely like foreign language to what this paper is talking about. It's absurd. All of it. Absolutely absurd. So let's let's uh, keep slogging on through this quote. While any traditional narrative about gentrification involves rents spiking for poor residents, the Philly Fed paper upends that expectation. Quote, somewhat surprisingly, gentrification has no effect on reported monthly rents paid by original resident, less educated renters. End quote. The paper finds instead it's the more educated renters that shoulder higher rents. The researchers can't rule out renter subsidies uh, or can rule out renter subsidies rather as a way of explaining this divide in rent increases. It's like, so I guess all those cash for keys schemes that are going on <laughs> and like the Ellis Act evictions and like all of that other stuff just isn't happening. And no, also it's like, definitely I think not this happening. also ignores the fact about. that like, Hey, you know, like a lot of uh, folks who are in RSO buildings are suddenly find their landlords are like really not happy with them or are using yeah. things like seismic retrofitting to be like, oh, guess what? I'm going yeah. to stealth up your rent this way. But also yep. the cost of living goes up significantly. Like the the restaurants that are around you, the, the grocery stores that you shop at, all of those prices yep. increase. And the argument in gentrification, because there is like some rental control in L.A., has never been that like everyone's rent goes up. It's that they find 
find ways to move in more expensive renters because like RSO does exist. There are some protections for renters, but this is just a fundamental misunderstanding of how that market works and how you like change a neighborhood over the course of like two to five years and take a neighborhood from being, you know, predominantly Spanish speaking to suddenly predominantly English speaking. Yeah, I mean, it feels like the authors of the study just did not have any concept of like, maybe there is a rent control policy in place because that's what our rent stabilization ordinance is. And it does control like why it is that people who are living in the area are not necessarily shouldering these increased rents, um, but they are shouldering these increased costs of livings as, as, as we've been discussing. Like, it's just, they totally missed the point here and it's just completely absurd. So even more fun following along further in the article, quote, not all the changes wrought by gentrification count as improvement. The paper acknowledges that rising property taxes can be difficult for existing homeowners to afford. For example, although the researchers still put higher values in the win category for homeowners, uh, like, just I'm highlighting this because it really just stands in such stark contrast to how property tax works here in California, which admittedly is a pretty back-ass word compared to everywhere else in the country. But we'll get to that later uh, in the podcast with our actual reading series when we when we uh, go into it this week. But like this entire like everything that this paper talks about is just totally not relevant at all in California in any of these categories. They don't understand how property tax works in California. They don't seem to understand that like rent stabilization or rent control is a thing. Uh, and they just also can't identify which neighborhoods are actually experiencing gentrification. Uh, so let's just close this section out with one of the quotes from caps that was highlighted by the editor at city lab for its relevance quote, Many original residents, including the most disadvantaged, are able to remain in gentrifying neighborhoods and share in any neighborhood improvements, end quote. I mean, it, you know, one thing that this doesn't <laughs> capture that this study completely misses is the role of new policing that happens when a neighborhood gentrifies. Yeah. And the fact that like a lot of people who grew up in the neighborhood who wouldn't count as like original residents, because when you're a kid living in your parents' apartment, you're not the one paying rent. You're not going to move yeah. into the neighborhood you grew up in. You're not going to be able you to can. afford a place there, to buy a home there, to yeah. do like to extend your family's life in that neighborhood. And even if you do, you're going to be faced with like way more skepticism from the police way more violence from the police, way more skepticism from local businesses. Uh, that's a cycle we've seen over and over and over and over again. And it's also one like with the, the Homes Not Hotels push, we know that as neighborhoods become more desirable, we see more commercial developments that aren't building spaces for more people to live. They're building spaces for tourists and for wealthy people to come visit and to visit the attractions and spend money so that the businesses benefit, not the actual people who yeah. live there. It's also, you know, I would have liked to have seen them talking about locally owned businesses and what happens to those businesses uh, in these neighborhoods, because we know in places like Westlake, where there were taquerias who, that were around for 20 years, suddenly saw a massive spike in their rent and were forced out. Yep. Um, and th those were owned by local residents. Um, but they don't really study that one. It seems like a way to mitigate this influence of uh, international capital on our neighborhoods and to, to try and say, oh, no, 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 no. This flood of like new money that is literally changing neighborhoods in these span of a couple of years is actually good for everyone when we know it's not like we know that rents keep going up but wages stayed the same even in neighborhoods where uh we are seeing this extreme gentrification like for a lot of the people who've been there for a long time they're not seeing a certain burst in their earnings they're seeing the exact opposite 
Yep. I mean, this, this whole article is just completely absurd. And actually what you were just mentioning there really makes me wish that we had something like a rent stabilization ordinance in the city of LA when it comes to like business properties. Like the fact that the landlords are able to just be like, Oh, Hey, look, this neighborhood is like hot and up and coming. And even though my tax burden isn't changing and hasn't changed in 30, 40 years, we're just going to jack up the rent because yeah, we can, we can do that now. We, we don't care about these businesses that have been our, our loyal tenants for the last 20 years. We can just jack the rent up and charge a whole lot more for this kombucha place that's coming in instead of the taqueria. Like, no, come on. Like well, what? And we're also, we're also seeing, uh, uh, several commercial spaces, especially around downtown that are just empty. You know, there's a lot of four yeah, lease signs up around DTLA, LA, which yeah. like you would think that if our economy was overheating the way that the economists are telling us that it is, we would not be seeing <laughs> empty brick and mortar storefronts like everywhere. And they're seeing this in Manhattan as well. And it's becoming a real oh, problem sure. because very much like the, the uh, you know, kind of vacancy tax that Bonin's proposing for residential stuff. We're also seeing that at, on a commercial level, obviously this smaller scale because there aren't as many commercial buildings, but there's a lot of empty prime real estate that could be taken up by local businesses to build the local yeah. economy that are just not being used because the landlord ultimately wants to make as much money as they possibly can and aren't willing to settle for anything less. Uh, and along that line, so let's let's go ahead and talk about some place where we do know gentrification is happening uh, and is yeah. threatening thousands of residents who uh, live either unhoused or with not permanent shelter on Skid Row. And this is becoming a, a, a more like pointed issue as downtown LA is pushing farther and farther east and farther and farther south and the the place that has become Skid Row is kind of beginning to shift and a lot of the longtime shelters and like places where people go for services and relief are being threatened. Yeah, so this is a fight that's been really has been simmering for a long while. Uh, activists within Skid Row have been shouting to be heard for decades, and a strong coalition of them, including our friends over at LA Can, uh, the Los Angeles Catholic Worker, Inner City Law Center, and the health group called United Coalition East, came together uh, this past week to uh, for a press conference to demand that the city take them seriously when it comes to the community plan that's being proposed for downtown LA. Uh, this community plan is going to determining determining how uh, zoning rules are going to be changed in the community uh, as we move forward. So at a press conference on, on this issue, uh, LA Can's Steve Diaz summarized the issues very simply, quote, when they're shrinking Skid Row, they're forgetting everyone who lives here already. We will not be gentrified, end quote. So the gist of this is really that the new plan that's under consideration only protects about a third of the historic Skid Row for as place uh, as a place that will be protected for homeless people and would offer what is often referred to as, quote, deeply affordable housing. So the housing that there's talking about specifically being in the 50 block core of the Skid Row neighborhood would have to be affordable for folks making between $10,000 and $58,000 per year, which frankly is an absurd set of numbers to be applying to folks who are living on Skid Row right now. Though, I guess if Andrew Yang becomes president, then maybe that freedom dividend is going to be solving at least some portion of this. Uh, well, but also keep, note, in, keep in mind when you're getting things like uh, welfare or payments from the government, uh, social security insurance, uh, disability insurance, uh, payments from the Veterans Administration, that's all taxable income. So that would probably put them above the $10,000 a year, uh, which Andrew Yang's uh, plan would take them down to $12,000 a year in earnings because you have to give yeah. all of that up if you accept the freedom dividend. 
Yeah, uh, the this the freedom dividend and all of this stuff, the the UBI stuff that people are talking about, being like, oh my god, this is going to solve all of our problems. Like, it's really just completely absurd. And uh, if you guys want to hear him try to defend himself, and it's really awkward, um, I would highly recommend checking out the interview series that was over uh, done on uh, Chapo Trap House, where they had Virgil Texas actually was interviewing Andrew Yang himself um, on this topic, and it was really just very enlightening is to see what the what kind of hoops it is that Yang is going to jump through in order to explain his worldview and justify it and say like no this UBI stuff is really not going to be used to completely gut the entire social safety net that we've been trying to fight for and protect for the last 50 60 years um Anyway, moving back to uh, the issue on Skid Row in particular, the areas that wrap around this 50 block core of what is uh, formally, like very formally known as Skid Row uh, would be uh, opened up for developers to build market rate housing. And the developers are going to be allowed to build significantly taller than the regular zoning requirement if they include either some affordable units or just some public amenities like public squares or some small parks and um, which seems like frankly, a really easy way for a, a developer to put in a bunch of market rate apartments be like oh we yeah. put in a square that's also going to have armed security <laughs> to kick out people we don't want there yeah uh, and also the number of building or, like the number of affordable units they have to put in to, to capture uh some of those exemptions is, is incredibly small it's and so would nice. not it's, house yeah. the like estimated 3,500 people that are living rough in skid row right now yeah, it's it's absurd. All of it's crazy. And uh, yeah, so Yegi uh, Kashishian, uh, a spokesman for the Los Angeles Department of City Planning, told the LA Times on this issue that, quote, we're making it easier, not harder, to build permanent supportive housing in Skid Row and throughout downtown. This plan encourages the development of desperately needed affordable housing in a manner that is sensitive to the needs of the Skid Row community. This is an approach shared by many nonprofit housing developers, and service providers who have who we have worked closely with to develop these proposals end quote yeah so basically like yeah we know that it's the people who are traditionally developing this stuff that are, are going to be the ones that uh, the Department of City planning are going to be consulting with they're not actually going to go out and talk to the people who have lived this experience and understand what it's like to actually be homeless and are watching all of these things unfolding around them uh the the this presser itself was actually held in front of a building that is smack dab in the heart of los angeles's skid row neighborhood and is being converted entirely into market rate live work lofts uh and it's it's if you look at google maps and you put in the the, the name of the building itself it pops up. It's the, the Catalina Swimwear Building. It's a six-story industrial building, uh, neoclassical in its architecture. Address is 443 South San Pedro Boulevard, or San Pedro Street, rather. And it is, uh, it's right in Skid Row, like right in the center of it. I don't know what this, like that, it, it totally does not fit in with the uh, description that folks are advocating for saying, yeah, 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 everything that's in the middle of Skid Row is going to be protected for actual homeless residents when, like, no, it's it's clearly well, not. You know, um, one of the things yeah. also is the, the city has made a big point of like, hyping up these kind of crown jewel like permanent supportive housing developments like the Weingarten Center. And the Weingarten yeah. organization is making a $100,000 donation 
to LAPD, uh, the LA County, uh, or the, sorry, the uh, LA Police Commission uh, rubber stamped accepting the donation because that is something that they have to do. Steve Soberoff was not there because <laughs> he also happens to sit on the board of the Wine Garden Center. And this is something that I don't think gets oh. enough play in, in the mainstream press is how inextricably linked all of the nodes of power in City Hall are. Like the people who are building permanent supportive housing also you know, rubber stamp every cop decision and find every shooting within policy. And also we're able to like basically do payoffs between the organizations that they control. And that becomes a real problem when you look at the connection of criminalization to becoming unhoused and wondering like, why is it that an organization that's dedicated to getting people off the streets is funding one of the major causes of putting people on the streets? Yeah. So uh, to close this out, the it seems very appropriate to get a quote from a guy who is uh, literally living this work, this lived experience, and he should be centered in this conversation. A 55 year old Kurt Casey has been living on the sidewalk in Skid Row for the past two years. And at the press conference, he said that, quote, what they'll do is push everyone even further east. They've already decided which streets, they just haven't told us yet. By the time this demographic wakes up, they'll be east of the LA River. Yep. And I think this is something, uh, Mark Horvath on, on Twitter, the, the, uh, one of the folks who founded Invisible, Invisible People, People yeah. uh, you know, pointed out that a lot of the time when you hear from folks in the, the homelessness sector, they're talking to formerly unhoused people. And like, we don't do enough to listen to people who are living on the streets now. And we need to do a better job of centering their voices and making sure we're listening to the people who are actually living this now, not the small demographic of people who have escaped it. Uh, we need yeah. to do a better job of like listening to the people who are actually suffering and having to survive every day like this and not just the, you know, sort of virtuous cases that got get brought up time and again because they're palatable for the LA Times and palatable for LA City Hall. And that's something that, you know, we're going to keep doing and fighting for because we don't hear enough of those voices. Um, I guess let's uh, let's go ahead and transition to some voices that we hear far too much of. <laughs> Me fail English? That's impossible. And this is going to be around uh, the coming fight over Prop 13. So the, the forces of reactionary uh, wealth are coming out strong very early in the game uh, in order to fight for the preservation as prop of Prop 13 as it stands. Uh, and let's go ahead and talk about this mailer that you got. Yeah, so I, I this was fascinating to see show up in my mail. Um, so this is talking about the proposed uh, split role, uh, which would effectively cause a separation, uh, or rather a removal of the kinds of Prop 13 uh, tax protections that are currently being enjoyed by commercial and industrial properties in the state of California, uh, who have... In, in they've received the lion's share of the protections that are afforded to everyone who owns property in California under this rule from 1978, where the uh, what the great oh, taxpayer revolt on his name. Yeah, what's the name of the guy with the the big mutton chops that was the head of it? Oh, um, Howard Jarvis, the Howard Jarvis. Howard tax Jarvis. Center, Why was the I the literal worst organization in the state of California? <laughs> they are absolutely. Absolutely terrible. Uh, uh, yeah, Shelly so uh, 
or uh, uh, Susan Shelley, who we've dragged on this show before, and we're going to drag her again next week because she <laughs> yeah, wrote a, yeah. another load of stupid. Uh, but she is one of their comms directors. Uh, they're just a collection of like the absolute most terrible reactionary people in the state. Um, but they didn't put this one out. This one was put out by the uh, the California Business Roundtable, right? Well, it was the so the it was paid for yes by the California Business Roundtable, uh, and it was quoting the uh, president of the California Taxpayers Association and just spitting some facts that they were uh, shall we say uh, fast and loose with. Um, but who who is the California Business Roundtable, Bushido? So the California Business Roundtable is basically like a Chamber of Commerce type setup. Um, I did some, like, I, you know, I've been sort of familiar with them, but I did a little bit more digging. Uh, I think one of the fun facts that I want to flag here is that their chairman is a man named Brett Biddle. Now, Brett Biddle is car- currently the general manager of Enterprise Rent-A-Car, uh, which was recently in the news because they rented vans to ICE for the immigration sweeps. Oh, uh, so that's clearly somebody we want setting the, uh, the tone for our debate over property taxes. Uh, Members of this group include 7-Eleven and Albertsons. Now, the fun thing is when you Google search the California Business Roundtable, you'll get like the little Google preview, you know, text. And under members, it says Albertsons, 7-Eleven, and then like another group that I didn't recognize. Uh, But when you actually click on that link, it takes you to a page that says you're looking for something that can't be found. So either they have it behind some sort of a paywall so that you can't actually access who their other members are unless you're a member of the California uh, business roundtable, or they've just like removed that page entirely. I'm not really sure which. I'm not about to sign up for their membership. Uh, but this is a reactionary group that is made up purely of business owners and businesses, and they describe themselves thusly: "Quote: The California Business Roundtable is a nonpartisan organization comprised of the senior executive leadership of the major employers throughout the state, with a combined workforce of more than a half million employees. For more than 35 years, the roundtable has identified the issues critical to." a healthy business climate and provided the leadership needed to strengthen California's economy and create jobs. And end quote on that. And that's like some really telling ownership class rhetoric. You know, they're not talking to workers. They're not talking Job to families. Creators. They're talking mm-hmm. to executives um, and men like, you know, Brett Biddle, who will rent vans to ice because it's good for the bottom line. And, you know, those government checks aren't going to bounce. So, you know, take everything that's in these mailers with like a huge grain of tax, a, a huge grain of tax with a huge grain of salt. You know, these are these are folks who are looking out for their own bottom line and not paying nearly enough taxes on state or federal levels and really want to make it so that like they're still locked into the property tax rates that they got in the early 80s, in the, the 70s, in the 60s, when they were paying next to nothing. Like Disney is still paying the same tax rate that they were paying in 1978 or, you know, very close to it, um, yeah, far below what they should be paying despite all of their expansions, despite all of the growth, despite the fact that Disney is one of the most profitable companies in the world, their property tax bill for Disneyland and California Adventure and Hurricane Harbor is incredibly low. Oh, and Disney Walk or whatever, that stupid mall they have out front where like you don't have to pay for a Disneyland ticket, but you can still pay Disneyland prices, uh, which I just think is the the worst place in the world. So before I start reading these quotes from uh, Robert Gutierrez, uh, who, as we mentioned, is the president of the California Taxpayers Association. Oh, you I, I should note this because I did them? some 
I did some research on Robert Gutierrez, and apparently his only mm-hmm. jobs have been with the California Taxpayers Association. Like, as far Wait, as I what? can tell, that's all he's ever done. He's got, uh, on his LinkedIn, he only has two jobs listed, and they're both for the California Taxpayers Association. So apparently, huh. that's all this man has ever done with his career, uh, which I think is kind of weird. Yeah, so, like... Uh, they're like you said, uh, like you you wrote down here that they're a regressive private group that fights against pretty much every tax that ever gets proposed on any ballot initiative, including those aimed at oil and gas firms. Quote, founded in 1926, the California Taxpayers Association is the state's largest and oldest organization representing taxpayers. Uh, established as a nonpartisan nonprofit research and advocacy co- association, Caltax has a dual mission to guard against unnecessary taxation and to promote government efficiency. End quote. So, Let's go, go ahead and dig into this. Quote, for more than 40 years, Prop 13 has benefited all Californians. I'm going to go ahead and stop there. Uh, Bushido, do you think that doesn't, Prop 13 has been <laughs> benefiting doesn't, all Doesn't benefit renters. Doesn't benefit renters at all. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's uh, <laughs> deprived everyone in the state of, like, worthwhile schools and roads. Like, that's why we yep. had to p- pass SB1. That's why we had to have the Prop 6 fight yep. is because, like, mm-hmm. our infrastructure is falling apart because you pay, with infa- you pay for infrastructure with property taxes. So if property taxes are real low, you don't pay for that stuff, and it all falls apart. Yeah, and on top of all that, the property tax uh, benefits that are associated with holding on to your home and not moving has resulted in some really screwed up market dynamics here in the housing market in particular in California because what it is is that if you if you were to move out of your home you lose that preferential tax basis or you stood to stand to lose that preferential tax basis so well it's folks sort of end they've up staying in these homes it, well, they've, it, they've yeah, also written a, a lot of examples. Well, they've they've written exemptions where you can, if you move into a similar or lesser valued home, you can keep it. Uh, if you're within like one of the counties that participates in that program, yeah. they've also written extensions for like if your parents pass away and leave you the home, you can keep the property tax valuation. Like we've created a lot of exemptions in order to keep well, intergenerational wealth in the family. Yeah. So the the inheritance part is just part of the rules straight up. Like if you're inheriting the the property, you get to keep the tax status. Like you don't have to pay a new tax status on it. That's why uh, the 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 article um, where uh, Liam Dillon from the L.A. Times was ragging on uh, Jeff Bridges and his sister for their preferential tax status that they have on this house in Malibu that they rent out. It's like you guys just you aren't living there. You just inherited this and you get to keep your parents preferential tax status from back in 1978 when they owned this home. You're paying nothing in taxes. Nothing. It's I think the they, if I remember correctly, like less than one month or maybe it was a month and a half of rent covered the entire tax burden for this for this home, which meant that virtually everything that they're doing. Uh, in terms of the rental rate is going straight into raw profit for Jeff Bridges and his sister. And uh, apparently that that article didn't go down very well uh, with the actor. So, 
Yeah, let's go back wah, to this wah. mailer before we go into uh, more more uh, tangents here. Uh, it calculates, gen- this is referring to Prop 13, it calculates general property taxes for both residential and business properties based on 1% of their purchase price. That is correct. It caps annual increases in property taxes at 2% per year, which protects against sharp increases in property taxes, especially when property values rise quickly. Also technically correct. It provides certainty to homeowners and businesses that they will be able to afford their property tax bills in the future. I mean, that's one way of describing it, of saying, yeah, you'll be able to afford this because it's never going to change because the 2%, the maximum 2% cap that it can go up by really is not very much at all and can definitely be guaranteed that the, you'll, you'll, like, you'll know what it is. Uh, Surprisingly, and the, the government subsidies point. make it easier to afford things. <laughs> My mind is blown. Amazing. Uh, the last bullet point here on the front cover is that it ensures a growing and stable revenue source to schools and local governments. Yeah, which um, is why we just had to try and pass uh, Measure EE, right? Because, like, the funding for California schools is so famously stable, which is why, like, I mean, the saying, when, ho- when Wall Street catches a cold, California catches the flu, because our tax revenue is so effing stable. No, so, I mean, technically correct, when you're talking about the property tax income that comes in that is supposed to be funding these things, it is stable in the sense that it is not changing, it is not going up, it is not increasing with the number of people who are actually living in this state, it is not increasing with the increased cost of living, it is not increasing with the cost of paying the salaries for our teachers, the cost of building new schools to replace the crumbling ones, that 2% maximum cap of the increase in the property taxes is killing our entire economy. It has had a stranglehold on everything that is going on in this state, and it's been doing this since 1978. So, he is correct, or this, this, uh, the, the Tax Players Association or, or the Business Roundtable, whoever it is that picked these bullet points, is absolutely correct. It ensures a growing and stable revenue source to schools and local governments, only in the sense that that growth is happening right around 2%, um, and then maybe there's a, there's a, there is a little bit when it comes to like uh, residential properties changing hands, but the bulk of this money, two-thirds of the property tax revenue that was collected by the state, by, by municipalities within the state of California back in 1978, two-thirds of that revenue came from commercial and industrial property taxes. It is now two-thirds of it coming from residential property taxes, which means that those commercial and industrial property tax payers are basically just skating on by. Their share of the pie has decreased because they are paying an extremely stable property tax basis that has not kept up with, the, with in any way to reflect the current value of the land that they're sitting on because they don't sell it. Like they just hold on to it for, you know, decades and decades and decades. And it's, it's, you know, when you're talking intergenerational wealth transfer for individuals, the way that it works for businesses is just, it's just spooky here in California. Sorry. Let's flip to the backside where it is nothing but dirty, dirty lies. Like they have oh, four yeah. bullet points here and every single one of them is untrue. Yeah, so the the header at the top says, stop unfair and higher property taxes. <laughs> yeah, don't talk, don't tax Bob Iger. Don't do that. He, he, that's unfair to tax Bob Iger. It's horrible. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm laughing too much. It's just the damn title on the page. So current efforts no, this to is undermine like, Prop this, 13. This, 
Sorry, I was going to say, uh, this actually makes me mad because yeah. after seeing what we went through with Prop 10, the pro- fight over Prop 13 is going to be so bloody and brutal and it is so That's effing funny, stupid yeah. and these people are just effing lying. Like, just staring yeah. at the screen cap. I want to punch my computer, but I can't afford to buy another one. So I'm not yeah. going to. But, like, yeah, these bullet points we're about to run through are so blatantly false. I do not know how they're legally allowed to lie like this. It is... Absolutely pernicious and absolutely disgusting. So before we get into the bullet points, here's the rest of the the, the interstitial space covering. Uh, current I promise efforts not to, to yell undermine. As much. <laughs> it's okay. Uh, current efforts to undermine Prop 13 taxpayer protections include state and local ballot measures, state legislation, and even lawsuits. These efforts to attack Prop 13 are deeply flawed and will undo 40 years of property tax stability. So here we go. Increases the cost of living for all Californians. Higher property taxes on businesses will just be passed along to all of us. We'll be forced to pay billions of dollars more for rent, housing, groceries, utilities, restaurants, prescriptions, clothing, daycare, healthcare, and even gas. Just about everything we buy or use will cost more. I like this fundamental misunderstanding of how taxes work as an investment into society and that like fixing our roads, our infrastructure, having better schools has a net benefit for society. Like if you own a car in the city of L.A., you're paying fifteen hundred dollars a year extra on car maintenance just because our roads are in such crappy condition because of Prop 13. Yep. Next bullet point eliminates tax certainty homeowners depend upon or depend on rather. Uh, every Californian who buys a home should be confident that they will not be forced out of their home later in life due to rising property taxes. The ballot measure that is going up doesn't touch homeowner taxes. The ballot measure in 2020 doesn't affect homeowner taxes. Just say that every time somebody <laughs> says this to you because they're straight up lying about what so the ballot measure will do. My, my guess is that they're relying on the fact that earlier on this page, they said um, they're, they're, that these efforts to undermine Prop 13 are coming from state and local ballot measures. So the state measure that we're talking about here is the split role one, which is um, it, it's it's uh, what is it? Schools and communities first is the name of the organization or the, the initiative itself. Um, yes. So that's what they're talking about when it comes to the state ballot measures, uh, the local ballot measures. There may be some that are being proposed that would somehow challenge Prop 13. But when it comes down to it, this this law has stood the test of time and has been upheld uh, as the law of the land for for decades here. So the idea that like local ballot measures are somehow going to undermine uh, the tax certainty for homeowners that they depend upon so much uh, is just patently absurd. Um, I guess maybe some the, there's also there was uh, discussion of in the state legislature to introduce uh, legislation that would be able to do this split role. Uh, and then there also are lawsuits. But this the way that they're phrasing this is that they're clearly talking about the state ballot measure. And then they just looped in all of that extra language to give themselves coverage when they're saying this is going to tax. This is going to increase the taxes that you as a homeowner pay, which is complete patently bullshit discussion point because that's not what 
virtually anyone is talking about. They're not sending this mailer out to everyone across the state saying, get worried about your local ballot measures. No, they're talking about the state ballot measure that would be putting a fair tax basis in place when it comes to commercial and industrial properties. It's just bullshit. It's just bullshit. So yeah, that was my turn to rant. Uh, and going on to the fourth bullet point. It, uh, uh, unf- uh, oh, sorry. Yep. Third one. Don't want to skip. Uh, it hurts small businesses and costs jobs. Many small businesses lease their stores, offices, and shops. Mm-hmm. Uh, property owners will simply pass along higher property taxes to small businesses by raising rents, cutting into their ability to stay in business and pay employees. This one is also absolute BS, because if you look at the text of uh, its initiative 17-0055, the California Tax on Commercial and Industrial Properties for Education and Local Government Funding Initiative, it has some exemptions in there. And the first one is on the first $500,000 of a business's personal property. The second one is 100% of a property if it has 50 or fewer full-time employees. So if you're leasing a store to a wood shop that has 20 employees, that that property isn't getting reassessed. And that's yep. the majority of small businesses or the majority of businesses in California, just like the majority of businesses in the US are small businesses with less than 50 employees. Like this one is just a blatant bald faced lie. It's also one where, you know, we need to be looking at the way in which businesses are forced to pay into the social safety net year after year after year. And they probably do have a point that like greedy landlords are going to tax small businesses uh, by raising their leases, by raising what they're paying mm-hmm. to do business here. And we need to simply be taking that money from those businesses and stopping them from doing that. You know, not allowing landlord, landlord greed to set the mm-hmm. tempo of the economy is probably something we should be looking into. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, th- th- this whole everything that they're talking about here is all it's meant to put a narrative in your head talking about this split role initiative. That is what this is targeted at, because the money that is coming to fund this is coming from those big businesses that, you know, are going to potentially be liable for a massive increase in their taxes because they've been skating by paying an absurdly small amount of taxes for the last 40 years. Like this is, it's, it's just unfair that these businesses that have been in place for a long period of time have this massive advantage over anybody who comes in and tries to do something new. Uh, like, you know, when you're talking about like a level playing field for businesses in California, prop 13 has guaranteed that that is not something that actually exists because it is a patently unfair system. It's also something where like one of the media tropes we're seeing recently is this complaint that businesses have so much money that they don't know what to do with. And it's like they're not paying better (laughs) wages or better benefits. They're They're looking for for bonds and. Yeah. And they're, well, they're looking for bonds to invest in and real estate to invest in ways to like stash their cash and make it work for them without paying workers more. And when it comes right down to it, that's where this money should be going. And we know that the landlords aren't running like huge operations where they're funding like hundreds of salaries to just like keep tabs on who's renting which property. So why are we continually, you know, looking out for the needs of people who run small extractive industries and small, small extractive businesses instead of looking out for people who actually, you know, live and work in California. (sighs) Yep. So last bullet point here, 
uh, unfairly harms minority communities and low-income families. I love this one. Higher costs for housing, food, and other groceries, services, gro- goods and services will impact minorities and low-income families the hardest, especially those already struggling to make ends meet. You know what really harms like minority communities, low wages, having a, a minimum wage that is far below a living wage? Like, let's not forget, oh, like yeah. Disney had one of their full time employees die in her car because she couldn't afford an apartment yeah. to live in. One of the most profitable businesses on the face of the effing planet does not pay the people who work at their flagship like amusement park enough to afford to live in Anaheim. You know, as far as like the cost of food and other goods, like, wow, isn't it amazing that Albertsons is part of the business roundtable and they also mm -hmm. happen to be gearing up to have a bunch of their workers go on strike because they don't pay a living effing wage. Like the same people who are going to fight UFCW when they're on the picket lines are the same people who are saying, no, no, you can't make us pay fair market value for the property that we use. And that's one of their, like the complaints that the the, uh, tax center here has here or the Cal tax has here is that they're going to reassess businesses at, you know, market value at what it would be worth, not at the purchase price. And I, I, this is amazing to me because whenever you buy something in California, you're paying taxes like sales tax based on its market value, not what you paid for it. Like if you buy a car for super cheap and you go to the DMV, they look up what the Kelly Blue Book value of that car is and then charge you taxes based on that. If you get yeah. like a deal from your phone carrier for like a free iPhone X, they don't charge you property or they don't charge you a sales tax based on the zero that you paid for it. They charge you a sales tax based on what that that phone is worth at market value. And so consumers are paying at market value, but some reason businesses don't have to pay at market value, even though that's how they do all their accounting. Like that's what their accounting practices are based on. Like this is, my brain is going to leap out my ear. It is so absolutely (laughs) angered at this. And on top of all that, you got to remember, like, we are the only state in the country that does this. We are the only state in the country that says, yep, the price that you paid at the time of purchase is the only thing that matters. You cannot reassess any of these property taxes ever again. Like, that's it. It's it's capped. That's all we that's all she wrote. That's it. Move on. Like, we're the only place that does that. And the whole situation—it's uh, all just absolutely bonkers. But I want to close this out on this discussion of this absolutely horrific and just repugnant uh, mailer with a very interesting set of pictures involved in it. Uh, this is from the from Deborah Howard. Uh, board member for the California Senior Advocates League, which has a very, I mean, it's a pretty basic logo that looks very much like a sheriff's star to some degree. Um, just like plastered right in the middle of it. I'm not sure quite what they do, but we can, we can look into that one maybe next time or something or just not because it's probably totally useless. Uh, quote, first, they tried to pass Measure EE, the local property tax increase that was an attack on homeowners. Now they want to change Prop 13. Let's stand together to defend Prop 13. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's amazing to me that like we're going to hear a lot of rich 
business owners and like titans of industry going to bat for minority communities, uh, no, they man. won't raise wages. Uh, they won't no. invest in schools. They won't invest in no. any of the programs that we know actually no lift up good. impacted None and frontline communities. They won't mm-hmm. ban effing fracking. They won't nope. move to electrification. They won't help people nope. get cleaner trucks. No, 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 no. Nope. But keeping property taxes low. That's what like minority communities in California really effing need. And we know from the data that 80% of the gains from Prop 13 have gone to wealthy, primarily white homeowners. Anyone who tells you that this is fighting for minority communities is way, way off base. And I know there's a good argument to be made about legacy homeownership in primarily minority communities, but like... Mm -hmm. The vast majority of homeowners in California aren't those people. And we can just write carve outs and exemptions and we can protect elderly folks and we can have some sundown provisions on that. But when it comes down to it, homeownership needs to begin to sunset. Like the climate crisis is coming. Homeownership, especially single family homeownership, is antithetical to us surviving that. We need to cut down the amount of resources we're using. We need to cut down the amount of land we're using. We need to rethink the way that we live and work. If you're doing a 45-minute commute each way, you're wasting like two months of your life in a car, burning a whole bunch of fossil fuels, putting a whole bunch of non-tailpipe emissions into the air. This stuff is literally killing us. Los Angeles and is it's a also sacrifice a massive stressor on people's lives. Like it's yeah. the, the time sitting in the car is destructive to your health and happiness. It you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't have to do it. Our society shouldn't force you to do this. This is stupid. Yeah, this has been frustrating and angering and landlords are bad and we need to stop focusing on protecting the extractive economy and start building a regenerative economy. Uh, So I'm going to get back on doing that. um, And I hope you all will join me on that one. Uh, But just remember like the prop 13 fight. I'm sorry. I killed your quote about the killing fields. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, if you thought the prop 10 fight was bad, the, the prop 13 fight is going to be just as bad, if not worse. These incredibly greedy companies are going to be fighting tooth and nail to demand that they not pay their fair share. And then we end up paying it for them. You know, when you complain about middle-class taxes, when you complain about regressive taxes, like the gas tax and sales tax, it's because the people who actually have the money have successfully lobbied the government and the voters in many cases to protect their ability to do that. This is a chance for us to wrest back that power, but it's going to take a full court press. What we learned in prop with prop 10 is that we can't just focus on the large cities like prop 10 won San Francisco. Mm-hmm. It won Alameda. It won Los Angeles County. We need to get out into the central valleys. We need to get out into the less urban areas of California and convince those people that we're on their side because they don't see us as on their side. And we can't keep having these low turnout elections where we're just kneecapping ourselves and setting ourselves up for more disaster. Uh, This is, you know, the fight against gentrification, the fight against climate change. All of these things are inextricably linked and we have a real chance here to make some change. Uh, The fun part is like this fight is starting now. We don't even get to vote on this for more than a year. uh, And voter fatigue is going to really enter into that. And these really crappy reactionary forces are really going to play on that. Also, uh, I I wanted to say this to you, Chris, and to anyone who gets this flyer in the mail, 
fill out that card. Tell them that you want to keep receiving their propaganda because like know your enemy. Like, let's see what their talking points are because like you want to be able to talk to your neighbors, talk to somebody at the bar, knock on a door and know that they're going to like give you one of these talking points and be able to refute it. And the best way to do that is to have these people paying money to just send this to you. Like you can do your own opposition research and the Howard Jarvis tax center will be paying the postage on that. And that is a really good feeling. That that is my only concern is like the number of these things that they end up getting back, I'm sure is going to get twisted into some bullshit survey result that says like so many people in the state of California are concerned about property tax changes. And, you know, (laughs) the response to a mailer really genuinely hope is never going to get used as like a survey result. But who knows? These people will try to target and twist these things around so bad. No, but so, never give up an avenue to intelligence. Absolutely. Never, never no, give and, that and up. You're, 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 you're totally correct. And then on top of all this, this is really just reifies the position that we, we talk about all the time here, where you need to be on the ground talking to people about these issues. You need to be out there knocking on doors. This is how, this is what ground game does. This is what the ground game is. What's important. It's what works. Talking on to people at their doorstep, talking to them about these issues that are important for them, telling them about issues that they might not even have heard of, but could have a massive impact on them. Like I was out at the, the homes, not hotels canvas for uh, no Olympics today. And we're talking with people who like, they've heard about these evictions that are going on, but they have no idea what the Ellis act is. They mm-hmm. know that the stuff is going on around them, but they have no idea that the community plan for the Hollywood neighborhood is currently slated to improve, increase like a massive number of hotels in the area that are just going to be replacing the actual homes that people are living in that have made up these communities for decades. Decades. Like people don't know about this stuff and they don't because they don't know about it. They don't have any way to organize collectively and demand uh, answers from their elected officials and demand that they be taken seriously. So the best way to do that is to go out and talk to people. And it sometimes it can be very intimidating. It can be very daunting, but it's an incredibly uh, fulfilling experience. And like once you do it, a couple of times, it just gets easier and easier and easier. And then at some point, you're just like, all you want to do is talk to people about politics and stuff. And it drives everybody else kind of bonkers. Um, yep. <laughs> so welcome to my life. Um, but anyway, as always, if you guys have events uh, that you want us to publicize, take part in, or generally be made aware of, please visit our website at www.groundgamela.org or visit our Facebook page and send us a message there. Or if you want to just send something over to us as an email, podcast at groundgamela.org is a fantastic place to send it. We will look through all of the stuff you send us. We will follow up on any tips. We will talk about it here on the internet because that is where we publish this podcast and it's a ton of fun. So thank you for everyone who listens to us all the time because uh, my, my new rallying cry I'm going to send us out on this week is uh, something I learned from uh, Daryl over in Detroit and it's yeah? rise up, fuck that shit. So y'all have a good week and keep that <laughs> in mind. Love it. Thanks, guys.